The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. For this episode of Ocean River Shields of Achilles, we're talking fur, fortune, and empire. And my guest is Eric Dolan. Hello, Eric. Hello, Rob. How you doing? Excellent. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Let me say a bit about your background. Eric Dolan has a BA and a BS from Brown University, Master's of Environmental Management from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and a PhD from MIT in Environmental Policy and Planning. Uh, Eric's dissertation at MIT focused on the role of the courts in the cleaning up of Boston Harbor. Uh, Eric Dolan has held a variety of jobs, including stints as a fisheries policy analyst at the National Marine Fisheries Service, a program manager at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, an environmental consultant stateside and in London. So you're spanning the Atlantic Ocean there with your consulting mm-hmm. on the environment. <laughs> uh, environmental social, no, wait. And uh, with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, as a writing fellow at Business Week, mm-hmm. a curatorial assistant in the Mollusk Department at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, and an intern at the National Wildlife Federation, the Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management, and the U.S. Senate. Good grief! (laughs) (laughs) Not every day you have your resume read out. (laughs) What? It's not every day you have your resume read out to you, but it's funny. It brings back a lot of memories, a lot of good memories. I bet it does. So, so how did you get there from from your humble beginnings and stuff? Uh, Humble beginnings on Long Island Sound. Well, ever since I was a little kid, I always loved the outdoors, nature, but in particular, I loved the ocean. I got involved in shell collecting very early on and uh, started saving up my money from cutting lawns. I would go into New York City to this uh, shell shop. There were two of them, collector's cabinet and mal de mer, which is seasickness, and I would save my money all year long, and I'd buy neat shells. I'd catalog all of them, put numbers on them, identify them, get background natural history about them. I just love shells. I love marine biology. thought I was going to be uh, the next Jacques Cousteau, when I grew up, and I pursued that path in high school and, and college. I was very involved in biology and marine biology. I were, uh, but what I slowly realized is that along with the, the biological aspects of you know, understanding research and science, I also liked the environmental aspects. And uh, when I was in college, I took an environmental studies course, an introductory environmental studies course, and I thought this is really 
uh, neat stuff. I like learning about how humans are impacting the environment and what we can do, hopefully, to improve the situation. So I decided to take a year off and sort of explore two different paths. Uh, and during so you that away year, from hard sciences. Yeah, right? hard sciences, and then see if I was cut out for it. And the the truth is, I already had an inkling that I wasn't quite cut out for it because taking chemistry and bio- biology labs and and the real hardcore science papers that I read, that wasn't the type of stuff that I knew that I wanted to do, or I wasn't sure that I'd really be that good at it. But I, I went off uh, for a year, and I uh, worked at uh, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute uh, doing, as a guest student, uh, some salt marsh work. But I also was a cook at night at the Fishmonger Cafe down in Woods Hole. And after a couple of months of studying yucca pugnax and their feeding behavior in Sipawisset Marsh, I... I wait, wait, wait. What is that? The oh, yucca pugnax, the crabs. Yeah. Uh, I was studying nutrient, the, his, their feeding behavior in uh, the great Sipawisset uh, Marsh with uh, Professor there, Ivan Valiella and John Teal. I was just a guest student, so they weren't paying me, but they were giving me lab space. And after a couple of months, I, I just didn't enjoy that kind of work that much. I love being a cook at the Fishmonger, and so I, I basically, the last month of that summer, I was a cook, and I was reading a lot during the day. I stopped being a guest student, and then I went down to Washington and worked first as an intern, then as an aide to Senator Lowell Weicker, and this is right when acid rain was becoming a big issue, and Senator Lowell Weicker was a very uh, sort of liberal Republican from Connecticut, and he was one of the first people to co-sponsor a bill on acid rain, trying to counteract the impacts of acid rain. And I remember I was in the office, and nobody in the office really had an environmental background. And I had just taken this environmental studies class. So they tapped me on the shoulder, and they said, okay, from now on, you're to introduce yourself as the environmental aide to the Senate senator. And I went to all these markup hearings. I wrote his position paper on acid rain, and I got really into the environmental policy side of things. And then I worked at the Clean Water Action Project and uh, did some other things during the year. When I came back to, to Brown as, a, as a, a, was it a sophomore or junior, boy, it's a long time ago, I yeah. switched tracks. I continued my biology degree, but I uh, got an environmental studies degree. And uh, all my jobs after that, all my education after that, had the environmental policy Lincoln, uh, that, that I loved, and perhaps, I don't know if the next question is, how did I get from that to writing, but there's an interesting trajectory uh, there. Uh, I don't know if you want me to continue. Or yeah, yeah, no, this is good. What's that? This is good. Yes, please. Okay. Now, after I uh, got back to school, got my degree, I worked for Booz Allen and Hamilton doing uh, hazardous waste uh, work. I wrote the RECRA Resource Conservation Recovery Act manual for EPA, did some super fun stuff, went back to Yale, got this master's degree, uh, worked on the Channel Tunnel a little bit, uh, doing an environmental impact statement type of thing over in England for a consulting firm, and then went back to MIT. And what happened at MIT is I thought I was going to be a professor of environmental studies, but about three-quarters of the way through my program, I realized that uh, I didn't like the kind of writing that I was going to have to do to get tenure someplace. And I enjoyed teaching, but I didn't like the, I didn't think I would fit into the academic environment. So I finished my PhD. I had this degree, but then I went to work for the the government. Uh, I also worked for the National Wildlife Federation for a little while, still doing environmental stuff. And about after being at EPA for almost five or six years, Although I was enjoying 
my government work, uh, and there were many times I found it quite frustrating, I have to admit, there was one constant throughout, and I liked writing. And while I was at EPA, I started writing books. The first book I wrote was called The Duck Stamp Story, uh, which is about this federal program where hunters have to purchase stamps and the money goes towards purchasing national wildlife refuge lands. And I thought that was a great program. I'm not a hunter, but I was a stamp collector at the time. And I said, this is a great tie-in to the environment. And it shows that uh, in the early years especially, and even today, hunters have contributed mightily to the protection of our natural environment, to the protection of lands where, of course, they can continue to hunt, but also animals can continue to thrive. So that book sort of got me hooked. And after that, I wrote a book on the 100th anniversary of the National Wildlife Refuge System for Smithsonian Books. I wrote a book on invasive species about the infamous snakehead fish that infested uh, a, a river, a lake in uh, Paton- in, uh, in Crofton, Maryland, and that was a big news media sensation some years back. So I kept writing these books, and I turned to my wife about, uh, I think it was in 2002 or 2001, and I said, I really like writing. I want to be a writer. And so we decided, well, I can't give up a good steady paycheck right away. Why don't I be a writer for the government? <laughs> so I got a job at the National Transportation Safety Board writing accident reports. Oh, it was no. the worst job I've ever had. I lasted for a year and a half. It was absolutely miserable, but that w- it was great because it forced Jen and I to think about what we really wanted to do and where we really wanted to be, and that was back in Massachusetts. My wife grew up in Marblehead. So I looked for a job up here, I found one at the National Marine Fisheries Service, even though I didn't have a background in fisheries management. And I remember during the interview, my future boss asked me, what do you expect to be doing five years from now? And I told her, I hope to be a full-time writer by that point, because that's right when I had started thinking about writing is the one constant. Researching and writing is the thing that I loved in natural history and American history. Uh, so uh, my, my wife was very supportive, but she said you have to earn at least a resemblance of a living. So I started working towards it, writing more books. I got a book, a literary agent, and my book Leviathan on Whaling did pretty well, and I, I got some more book contracts. And finally in the summer of 2007, my wife turned to me one night and said, you can quit your job now. And, uh, you know, woe to the man who gets what he wants. I, I got a little nervous. It took me a couple of weeks, but I did quit my job. And I remember going in, uh, talking to my very nice boss. I said, uh, I said, you remember what I said five, four and a half years ago when you hired me that I wanted to be a writer in five years? Well, I'm, I'm leaving. And I've been a full-time writer ever since. And, but I still have maintained my connection, I think, to all of my past because my books about whaling, about the fur trade, uh, the one I'm working on now on the China trade. They always have components of natural history, which is what I really love, but also how natural history and the use of natural resources and or the abuse of natural resources has uh, sort of formed or created American history and has affected American history. And that's what that's a, I really love to do. So now I'm doing... The, the one job that uh, I love more than any I've ever had, it's a hard job. It's the hardest job I've ever had. Writing is not easy, and uh, the publishing industry is very fickle, and you never know when you're going to have a success or not. But so far, so good, and that's how I got to where I am today and talking to you. <laughs> well, I can relate to so many things there, and one of them is that um, when I was, I was working full-time, 
and my wife got back to work with uh, the medical insurance, and um, I had an opportunity to um, get a fellowship and go to graduate school to study environmental studies, but the hidden curriculum was that I had three young guys at home whom I wasn't seeing because I was driving in early to Boston to be ahead of the traffic and never able to get home that early afterwards and stuff. So, um, you know, I quit the, the day job you know, ostensibly to go back to graduate school, but the other side is that um, I had three kids that needed attention, and mm-hmm. uh, it's great that we can find work like that that allows us to learn and also be good dads. We're out yeah, of time. We're going to take a break, and then I'll be right back with Eric Dolan. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network keep listening to the green talk network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow the green talk network spread the green
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, my guest today is Eric Dolan, and he's been telling us about the incredible career path that he's been on. And um, Eric, if people want to know more about many of the things that you referred to, um, they can go to your website. And what is that? This is www.ericjdolan, uh, my full name, E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And there's a little bio, and there's a lot of information about books and some neat pictures. And there's even a video, a book trailer I put together with my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, for uh, the, the book we're going to talk about next, For Fortune and Empire. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's talk about the book, I guess. Um, okay. Yeah, but it's a, no, it's a great site to go to because uh, you mentioned your uh, Duck Stamp book and uh, other books, and they're all right there for people to get more information about. Um, but yes, so the reason that I've invited you to come on, uh, that you've come to my attention is that the acclaim that your book, you know, Fur, Fortune, and Empire is getting, and uh, it's well-deserved because it's so well-written, um, and it's so engaging. And now I know that part of the secret to your success is that uh, you had a similar experience to um, E.B. White. When E.B. White graduated from college, he was trying to make it as a writer, and not getting any money, so he signed on as a cook to a ship uh, sailing to Alaska, and he uh, works his ship all the way up to Alaska, and they go to the Pribilof Islands, and he's thrilled to see seals, and his other, the other bottle washer on, or coffee pot washer on the boat has his image that seals can fly, and so E.B. White has to go and see the seals and come back and tell the, the poor shipmate that... Uh, no, they don't fly, but, you know, nature is still pretty cool stuff, because E.B. White shows in his works and stuff, you know, Stuart Little and, and stuff like that, and Trumpet uh, of the Swan. Right. Um, but, but you're good about, you know, really telling the stories of, uh, you know, getting into the details of what's happening. Uh, but let's, um, let's, let's back out and uh, get a sense of, um, you know, why, why did you choose this topic, and what compelled you to write about this? Yeah, uh... A lot of my book topics sort of come about because of Brownian motion. I knock into something, and, and it's very clear to me exactly when the idea for this book came into my head. It was back in the spring of 2007. I was just wrapping up uh, Leviathan, the whaling book, and I was looking for other topics. Uh, and I was reading this book that had some relation to the, the whaling story, but it was sort of a broader history of the founding of New England. It was called The Founding of New England. It was published in 1921 by James Truslow Adams. And I just remember reading this sentence in there where he said that the Bible and the beaver were the two mainstays of the Plymouth colony in its early years. And I remember saying to myself, I don't think I said it out loud, but in my head, I said, (laughs) what is he talking about beavers for? I understood the Bible reference. I really knew very, very little about the, the fur trade, so I started reading more, and I, I quickly discovered it's just a fascinating slice of American history, and it's a, it's a great way to, to use the fur trade as a narrative backbone to tell a really uh, interesting narrative tale about uh, almost 300 years 
of American history, the same way the whaling book basically used whaling as a narrative backbone to tell a, a story about uh, American history. And, and this is, this is my, uh, my modus operandi with, when it comes to books. And so far it's worked out. I always pick topics that I don't know a lot about uh, because I figure if I have to work for two years perhaps on a book, researching and writing it, I better stay excited and I better keep getting surprised. And the best way to do that is to pick topics that I'm not thoroughly steeped in. It's not, uh, you know, I don't want to write multiple books on the same topic. Uh, but there's a downside to that, which I'll readily admit. It's that almost all of my reading and all of my waking hours that I'm working on writing I have to be reading books that relate to the topic I'm working on at the moment because I have so much catch-up to do. So all these great other books that are being published, I don't get a chance to read them. So that's the one drawback because uh, I have to go through a crash course in educating myself to the point that I feel confident that I could tell the story accurately and with some some interest. It's, it's very hard. Maybe some people could do it. But it, for me, it's very hard to tell a convincing, interesting story if you don't have, you know, five times more information than you need to actually tell the story. You have to call out of it what is the narrative thread and what's really interesting. And the thing about the fur trade book that I loved is it does combine natural history and, and certainly the near extinction of a couple of phenomenal animal species uh, with the course of American history. And I, I don't look at the book, I, I don't look at the history from modern eyes. I look at it for what it is. And my book ends with the rise of the conservation movement. So it doesn't deal with modern controversies about the fur trade and wearing furs and the like. I'll leave that to people who are more passionate about that topic than I am. But, uh, well, that you, don't, you don't present an academic work. You, you tell stories and you get totally immersed in the tales of the various people involved in, in various aspects of the, of the fur trade. So rather than, you know, reading about Harry Potter at Hogwarts, you're reading about, you know, what Astor has done to outfit a ship and how the captain is, is a, you know, Ahab and, you know, <laughs> right into the details of, um, you know, one exciting story after another. It's a real, it, it's, it's a scholarly work, but it's also a page turner, you know, and so many other fur books are just, you know, how many barrels of, of seal skins were brought into Stonington and how many pounds of pelts were here and there and stuff. And, and that, those are really the side stories. And, and you put the, the people uh, front and center. And, and yeah. that's what, you know, that's what we learn from is how people handled situations. Right. No, you, uh, you've got it exactly right. That's certainly the way that I view the book and how I approach uh, writing I, I'm not writing an academic book, despite my academic background. These are popular narrative uh, histories that are steeped in a lot of research, but uh, first and foremost, they have to be engaging enough to get people to want to read them, because my whole goal was not to write a book for fur trade experts. It was to write a book for people like like I had been before I started working on the book, who don't know a lot about it and are interested in American history or natural history and uh, want to learn some neat stories. And I firmly believe that the best nonfiction is as good as the best fiction. I mean, life, uh, real life is, is often stranger than fiction, as they say, and I think that's really true. And one of the things that pulled me through in working on the book, uh, the best, and one of the most exciting aspects, was learning about all these characters in, 
in history, people I had never heard of, some I had heard of and knew hardly anything about. And in their actions, uh, there's just a great story about America, a great American story. I just, I loved writing the book. Yeah, there's this whole, you know, legacy and, and culture of, in, of identity that's wrapped up in, in the, the fur traders and the fur trappers. And, you know, and you, you really build on that. You know, I think that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. The rugged individualism, going out into the wilderness. I mean, it wraps into a whole bunch of American themes for better or worse. I'm not, you know, passing judgment on these things, but everything from manifest destiny to the causes of wars uh, to interpersonal rivalries to the relationships between uh, Native Americans and the Europeans and then the Americans and the Plains Indians out west. And there are so many different themes that get wrapped up in in the book. It's it's just a great American uh, story, and I love telling it. Yeah, and that's what ecology is all about, is these interconnections and how everything interacts. And then you take it, you know, to the ultimate of we get to see how people deal with challenging situations and how they, they do or they don't get through it. Um, and, and so there's, you know, it's just a fabulous read. Um, and you, you tell the epic history of, you know, the beaver, the buffalo, the seal, and the sea otter. And um, just when the fur bears are about to be extinguished from a region, the hunters kind of move on. Right. And so much of your book is about extinction versus the market. Yeah. And um, you actually write about how the market saves mammals, which I kind of think is ironic. Yeah, well, well, that, that's sort of in the end, the conservation movement, after the age of extermination, which was most of the 1800s when the slaughter of animals of all types was absolutely incredible, it sort of led to the rise of the conservation movement, and that in turn changed the, the workings of the fur trade. For the first time, they passed laws and regulations trying to restrict the amount of fur-bearing animals that could be taken. But don't, don't get that wrong in the sense that the reason those laws were passed were not to protect these species because they deserve protection uh, because they're valuable, amazing species of animals. They were to protect those animals so the populations could expand, so the trapping and the hunting could continue. So it was a way to sustain the industry, not to shut it off. So it's very different from some of the environmental sensibilities that we now apply to animals in, in great uh, uh, distress, you know, endangered or, or threatened animals. But I think it's a really important uh, turning point. And the, the book is also a cautionary tale, even though it doesn't talk about uh, the modern era. You can't help but read it and realize that man's avarice, unrestrained for riches in the form of pelts, did drive a number of species uh, close to extinction, certainly locally and sometimes uh, continent-wide. And that is, if nothing else, an argument for restraint, regulation, and uh, sort of better respect for the world around you, the natural world. And that's what led to the rise of the conservation movement. That was part of what led to that. Yeah, that and the bird killing. Yeah, the bird, bird killing. I mean, there were a whole bunch of things that were going on at uh, one, one time in the late 1800s. It must have been to be a fascinating... If I can go back to one era in history, I think the late 1800s or the cusp of the 1900s would be one of the ones I'd want to see because of all the ferment and the reactions in society to what we had been doing to not just the land and the animals, but also uh, Native Americans. And it just was a very 
uh, tumultuous time, a lot of larger-than-life characters like Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir. But, um, right. Eric, thank you. We'll be right back after this break. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time thank you for listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part now help them think green spread the green the green talk network You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Eric Dolan about his new book, Fur fortune and empire and um it's an epic history of the beaver and the buffalo and the seal and the sea otter uh here in in the u.s 
And it, it seems in the telling, Eric, that, you know, the trouble for fur animals really arrives when the animals have nowhere else to go, that we had, um, you know, we had the hunters uh, moving west. You mentioned Manifest Destiny across the nation, you know, and, and as one animal got difficult to find, they would just move west. And so it seems like the worst trouble came when they were on the west coast and they were going after seals and sea otters who were more restricted to islands that could be um, exterminated. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, basically anywhere they went from east to west, is, as soon as they stripped one area of the, an economically viable population of the, anim, the key animals they were looking for, they would go someplace else if they could find those animals. Or sometimes the fur trade just shifted. Uh, you know, when beavers became really scarce throughout the continent, uh, at least the lower 48 where the United yeah. States was, they uh, shifted largely to buffalo robes. So there were sort of trends and waves in the in the fur trade, but when they got out west with the sea otters in particular, yeah, they were located uh, from the Pribilof Islands all the way down to the Baja Peninsula and the intense hunting, not just from the Americans, but from the Russians up in the Pribilofs where they forced the Aleuts to hunt for them, and down in California where both Americans, Spanish, and the Russians were operating at different times, uh, really dramatically reduced uh, the sea otter population's uh, to very, very low levels at two different times in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And then it sort of subsided for a while. And then in the end of the 1800s, there was a, another huge ramp up with after America had purchased Alaska and uh, sea otter furs and seals came back into vogue, their populations plummeted again. And that actually led to the passage of uh, the first international treaty, I think in 1911, to protect fur seals, sea otters, and and the like. So the, they sort of took a double hit. And today, sea otter populations out west are still in trouble in various places, still listed on the endangered or threatened uh, species lists. And uh, there may be other, you know, part of the reason they were dramatically reduced, of course, is fur, is for the fur trade. But there are other uh, factors that play a role in sea otter populations. And today, I know many marine biologists are scratching their heads trying to figure out why the sea otter populations in certain areas aren't rebounding as quickly and, in fact, in some cases, I guess, going down. And there are questions of predation and uh, pollution or disease. Or, uh, so it's a very complicated story. It's not always just the, the fur trade that had an impact on these animals. There were other factors as well. But the fact that they, sea otters would not come back in parts of the northwest and, and parts of the Pacific coast there... Um, seems to, well, first indicates that they got hammered harder than did the beaver, the buffalo, and the seals. Um, that, uh, yes, well, it's, it's hard to say, because the beavers are particularly good that's true. They were sort of repopulating, completely. and even though they were virtually extinct in many New England states and then further out west, I don't, the trappers and traders hardly ever took it to the last animal, uh, with the exception of the, the buffalo, and because they were attacked from so many sides, they went from a population of 30 million perhaps down to only 1,091, which is as close to extinction as you could possibly come without being extinct almost. And, uh, but the, the beavers, there were still pockets of populations all over the place, and they started repopulating once the hunting pressure was off. The sea otters, they weren't totally annihilated, but certainly in some areas they probably uh, were. 
and they've had a tough time coming back. But of all the animals that were hunted during the fur trade, it's definitely the beavers that have made the quickest and most dramatic uh, comeback to the point that a lot of people are complaining about there being too many beavers, especially when they're in their backyards damming up streams and, and, and rivers. And the first beaver in 200 years was seen in New York City in 2007. And, you know, sort of like, I guess the Frank Sinatra tune, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Uh, That's is, a great story. You call him Jose? Yeah, his Jose, Jose. Well, he's named after a congressman who helped provide about $15 million in cleanup funds for the Bronx River. So he was That's named great. in honor of him. <laughs> well, what lessons can we take from your book on why and how hunters and environmentalists get along with each other? Hunters and environmentalists? Well, there are a couple of lessons uh, from from the book. Uh, one is that the pursuit of money in the form of natural resources drives a lot of American history. Two, the pursuit of natural resources with any kind of checks or balances can lead to ruin on the part of the animal kingdom and those that depend on it, like with the buffalo and the Plains Indians who depended on the buffalo for their survival. Yeah. Uh, but with respect to... In uh, how you know environmentalists and hunters, I'm not sure this book has a lot to say. But as I mentioned before, when I worked on the duck stamp story book and just throughout history, especially the conservation movement in the early 20th century and even up through the present, uh, people should realize that uh, hunters are often the ones who have been in the vanguard of protecting the natural environment. Of course, for partially self-serving reasons, because they want to maintain the populations of the animals that they hunt, but that doesn't discount the huge benefits that have resulted from the actions of individual hunters and hunting organizations like Ducks Unlimited that have really raised enormous quantities of money to help set aside huge tracts of land, and we all would be much poorer for it if it hadn't been for the hunters' actions and activities over the last hundred and hundred and fifty years. I think it's important to keep it in perspective. It's not only environmentalists and conservationists that are doing good things for the environment. It's also hunters, many of which would consider themselves environmentalists and conservationists and don't find uh, that to be an oxymoron just because they hunt. So I think people should be a little more open-minded about things. Yeah, I, I find that here in Massachusetts that we have Plum Island National Wildlife Refuge to a fabulous birding place to go and a fabulous shoreline. And all of that was acquired with hunters, the hunters paying for the duck stamps and stuff. Right. And, you know, and many of the environmental conservation lands that have been saved by environmentalists are kind of like gated communities where you've got to be a member to get in or you've got to pay an entrance fee. And, and the hunters have really provided a lot of uh, public spaces for the public to... Um, get in touch with nature. I guess the final message I would leave is just sort of a generic message that has served me well in life. Life is rarely, things are rarely black and white. Uh, not that it's always gray, but it's always good to look a little bit beneath the surface to really understand uh, what's happening and not uh, stick with, uh, you know, well-worn cliches or these people are good and those people are bad dichotomies that don't necessarily hold up to the, to the, uh, the light of day. Well, that's the excellence of your book, Eric, is that in Fur, Fortune, and Empire, people really get to know the individuals. They really get to live the lives and feel the 
conflicts that they're dealing with, and it, it sheds a ton of light on, you know, on destroying the stereotypes of what the hunter is and how bloodthirsty he is and how these people are struggling to survive in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, are we... Any other questions about furs or my next book, which is on the China trade? It actually grew out of the furs. Yeah, there trade we go. Go ahead. China a little trade. bit, because as I said, I'm sort of brownie in motion when I read about the sea otter trade and how that opened up American trade with China. I started thinking, wow, China, that's a fascinating history there. And China's in the news so much nowadays. I thought it would be uh, really neat to look at when America and China first met back after the American Revolution and up through the end of the Civil War, and look at the the tea, the silk, the porcelain trade, the opium wars, the clipper ship era, and sort of the clash and meeting of these two uh, different cultures, the oldest uh, country in the world and the newest country. And uh, so that's what I'm working on right now. So that'll also have a natural history component, not just sea otters, but uh, sea cucumbers, sandalwood, uh, bird's nests, uh, there are a lot of different uh, trade items that uh, got wrapped up in the China trade and yes. uh, have a natural history component. This is fabulous because this was necessary for people to start understanding what Darwin was suggesting, that all animals aren't the way God created them and placed on the earth as God created them because they started getting reportbacks of these amazing animals from far-flung places like China. And just start opening the eyes of people that, you know, the wonders of the diversity of life around the planet started to make people question, you know, maybe animals have moved and changed or something instead of just, or maybe not. So, you know, a botanist went in with Perry to Japan right after um, Japan was open to communications and Mm -hmm. sent back botanical specimens to Asa Gray here at Harvard and Gray looked at him and said, oh, my gosh, Charlie Darwin's onto something, that these plants are so much like the ones here in, in New England that uh, there's no way that God created them separately from each other or something. Hmm. Well, that, I'm not sure that's a theme I'm going to explore in the book, but it's an interesting thought. <laughs> yeah, no, you're just going to touch on, you know, touch on, the, um, on America connecting with China and, yeah. um, and what kinds of things we discovered in the, along the way. Yes, yeah, and... Uh, hopefully that I'll finish that book, uh, finish writing it come spring or early summer. And uh, who knows what the next topic is, but I hope it involves the natural world and, and American history in some way. Um, but I have no idea what it's going to be right now. <laughs> Eric, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Tell us your um, email address one more time. My website? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the website. It's, uh, it's www.eric.com. J. Dolan, E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N dot com. Also, Eric Dolan will get you there. Eric Dolan dot com will get you there as well. Just remember, D-O-L-I-N. Thank you, Eric, for being on the program. Well, thank you, Rob. Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. All together now.
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Mike Dunmeyer from Ocean Champions. We're going to talk what ocean conservation is looking like on Capitol Hill. How are you doing, Mike? Fabulous, Rob. Doing real well. How are you today? Well, this is a very busy time of year, screaming into the elections on November 2nd. Um, I'm afraid we're not going to have enough time to cover everything you want to do today. <laughs> there's, there's never enough time. Um, but uh, we, we can certainly talk about our most recent endorsements and uh, you know, if we have any, if we have uh, time left over, just generally political landscape and stuff like that. But there certainly is an awful lot going on. Okay, political endorsements. All right. So, um, real quick, uh, just uh, 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 remarking on uh, your last guest, Eric's uh, discussion of the fur trade and, and seals. Uh, I'll talk about our, our last six endorsements, and all six of these candidates that we are endorsing. Uh, voted to pass Sam Farr's Sea Otter Recovery and Research Act, which passed the House earlier this year, and we need to get it through the Senate. Um, so, again, we, we make the point all the time that elections matter, and if you don't have the right people in there, it doesn't matter how good a case you make, 
you've got to have people that are sympathetic to your cause, and that's what Ocean Champions does, is try to help these guys get in there and stay in there. Um, so Mike, if all, people want to learn more about that legislation, they can go to your webpage? They can indeed. Um, so if they go and uh, look at uh, oceanchampions.org and look at the candidates that we endorsed, if they look at any of the guys we talk about today, they'll, they'll see links to the bills that these guys have voted for, have co-sponsored, things like that, and that will give them the information to track down and link on the Sea Otter Research and Recovery Act if that's something they're particularly interested in. Yeah, we got a lot of interest in sea otters around here these days, so that's excellent. Thank you. Sure. Well, tell us more about who you're endorsing. Well, um, we we've endorsed, endorsed uh, two gentlemen from New Jersey, uh, John Adler and Leonard Lance, um, they're an interesting pair because uh, uh, Mr. Adler is a Democrat, Mr. Lance is a Republican, uh, but their voting records on ocean issues and broadly on certain big environmental issues are almost the same. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, if you think about, well, you, know, you want to have people that will support ocean issues in there, but you also want to have people for whom these ocean issues are relevant. Well, Mr. Adler has, has the second longest coastline in New Jersey, and uh, Mr. Lance, though he does not have a coastline, is, is very close, and a lot of people that live in his district vacation at the beach, and so it's meaningful to them. Um, but uh, in any case, as I mentioned at the top of the show, both of these guys supported the Sea Otter Bill. Uh, Le- Leonard Lance was one of just eight Republicans to vote for uh, the Waxman-Markey Climate Bill. Mr. Adler supported that as well. Uh, and of note, in his Republican primary, Mr. Lance had to defeat a Tea Party candidate that was just hammering him for his good climate vote. And so this is the kind of thing, this is why uh, people that believe in uh, environmental and ocean action need to support the people that are supporting their case. Mr. Lance took a, you know, took a, a big risk in supporting that. It almost cost him the primary, but he got through, and he looks good in the general. He's a great guy. Um, but he and uh, Mr. Adler voted for the Clean Estuaries Act. They voted for the Omnibus Public Lands Act, which which uh, works against ocean acidification, which has a conservation package to buy up important coastal land to protect it. Both of these guys uh, uh, also uh, voted to protect marine turtles and certain other species. And Adler himself did a lot of work in, in the leadership area in terms of clean estuaries. So both really, really strong ocean guys and Mr. Lance, uh, a, a leader in the Republican Party in terms of environmentalism. Also, as a side note, we uh, Ocean Champions Voter Fund New Jersey endorsed him back when he was a state senator, so we've been with him for quite some time. Um, and I see that uh, Representative Lance also co-sponsored American Wildlife Heritage Act. He did indeed. He did indeed. He's, uh, he's a strong environmentalist across the board, and when we interviewed him, you know, he uh, he mentioned other Republicans that could be like-minded, and you know that's the great thing is you know we we've got to build strength on both sides of the aisle, and working closely with with uh, some of the Republicans that we have gives us entree and an opportunity to meet others and establish communication and find common ground with more and more in that party, and that just strengthens our cause. So it's it's a real good thing. Yeah, find those Teddy Roosevelt Republicans. Indeed, indeed, and they're out there. Um, so the next well, two I'll mention. Uh, sorry, Rob, go ahead. Go ahead. Who else? Next. Uh, next, I'll mention Mike Honda and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Now, um, in addition to looking for people that are passionate about oceans, that will lead on ocean issues and have districts that are relevant uh, and, and, and thus suggest that they will take action on those ocean issues, you also want to find people in position to do good things. Both Mr. Honda and Ms. Wasserman Schultz are senior appropriators. And as we've talked about here, it's great to pass 
good ocean laws, but unless you can get them funded, yeah. there's not much point. So you've got to have friends on the Appropriations Committee. Um, both uh, Wasserman Schultz and Honda are pretty strong across the board. They've both supported good fisheries funding, uh, innovative programs to build infrastructure to support fisheries management and help bring endangered species back. Uh, Mr. Honda uh, was a very, very strong opponent uh, in, in the air, or, or I should say supporter of the anti-drilling movement that came out of the Gulf disaster a short while ago. And Ms. Wasserman Schultz, in addition to being a senior appropriator, is also a leader in the Democratic Party. So her opinion is very influential, and she uh, really she voted in favor of every single bill that Ocean Champions cared about. So that's that's great leadership from her. And then the the last two that I'll give you uh, right now, I'll give you the scoop. We're coming. We're going to be coming out tomorrow with an endorsement of uh, two folks from the West Coast. Uh, Congressman David Wu from Oregon and Congresswoman Lynn Woolsey from California. And again, you want to have people in the right position to do good things for the ocean. Neither one of these guys are appropriators, but they're both senior members of the Science and Technology Committee, which is one of two committees, natural resources being the other, two committees in the House that generally originate most of the ocean bills. So they're in position to start a movement and see something pushed all the way through to completion, and both of them have done this. Uh, Congresswoman Woolsey, in particular, has been very strong uh, on protecting marine areas. She passed a bill uh, that expanded the Gulf of Farallones and Cordell Banks Marine Sanctuaries, which, in addition to helping challenged fisheries re- uh, recover, makes it illegal to drill there. So she just kind of put a stake in the sand and says, you're not going to drill off this coast. She then followed that up by co-sponsoring the West Coast Ocean Protection Act in response to the Gulf spill, um, which, uh, which would seek to permanently ban drilling off of the entire West Coast. Congressman Wu uh, is the head of the, the Technology and Innovation Subcommittee of the Science Committee, and it obviously big believer in science, big believer that uh, uh, developing alternative and renewable energy is an important economic driver as well as an environmental driver, and he's done a lot in that area. Uh, We met him at a fundraiser um, for uh, another champion that that we have worked with and uh, just started having a a casual conversation and wound up talking to him for 15, 20 minutes and and just saw how like-minded he was. When we interviewed him again this year to touch base, he told us that he wanted to be a marine biologist until he was in high school and then uh, uh, changed his plans uh, as, as he got a little bit older, but was always interested in marine science. So six strong, strong candidates, all in position to do good things for the ocean, all with the right motivation to do good things for the ocean, uh, and, uh, and we would hope uh, are going to uh, continue to be great champions, and we have every confidence that they will. So I would urge people to visit your website, oceanchampions.org, and click on Congressional Campaigns, Champions, I mean, to see the growing list, the burgeoning list of uh, endorsed uh, senators and congressmen. Um, Some of them have tougher races than others. 30 or so when we're done, and and again, elections matter. These are the guys that are doing the good stuff for the oceans and will continue to. Mike, I can't believe we're out of time already, but... um, there are our marching orders. Please look at our webpage, oceanchampions.org. Mike, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Rob. For Healthy Oceans, thanks for tuning in to Ocean River Shields of Achilles.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.